0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace, and make a more diverse and inclusive community while we're at it. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and in this half hour, we're going to discuss what may be one of the most powerful antidotes to bias and bigotry, which is actually when we focus on its presence within ourselves. We're going to be doing this with a man who has done just that in his powerful and provocative work. I became aware of Professor George Yancey through his recent opinion piece in the New York Times titled Hashtag I Am Sexist, um, which then led me to his enormously potent Dear White America that had been published on Christmas Eve just a few years ago. Um, that also has served as the prompt or the catalyst for his recent book, Backlash. George's impressive work includes a whole body of scholarly work in his life as a philosophy professor. Um, he's really interested in ways to engage philosophy dynamically to practice frank speech or what we're going to discuss as courageous speech within and outside of the classroom. He has authored, edited and co-edited numerous books, articles and chapters. He's been quoted worldwide, including places as far away as Turkey, Australia, South Africa and Sweden. He's the Philosophy of Race book series editor at Lexington Books and fortunately for us, our guest today on Women at Work. George, welcome to the show. We are really honored to have you.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for that wonderful introduction as well.
0: <laughs> um, so, George, talk to me about why you wrote Hashtag I Am Sexist in the New York Times and why you wrote it now.
1: Yeah, I, I felt that uh, there was a need for um, males in our society, you know, those who identify as males, cisgendered, heterosexual males, uh, to begin to think about ways in which they perpetuate forms of misogyny Patriarchy and sexism, in ways that they may not understand that they do, uh, and that idea is consistent with the way in which I think about uh, whiteness. It's the way in which I—it's consistent with the way in which I think about white supremacy. Uh, so, to give you an example, in my in my article, "Dear White America," which I wrote in 2015 for the New York Times, and that piece actually came out on uh, Christmas Eve, which was kind of interesting because I referred to the letter as a gift. In fact, I refer to it as a, a letter of love. And in that, in that particular article, I decided to, as it were, come out as a sexist uh, in order to build a bridge, as it were, between myself and those white individuals um, with whom I was speaking and trying to get them to identify ways in which their racism operates both blatantly and subtly. And so the idea was that if I were to talk about my own sexism and to come out as a sexist, uh, that would hold up a kind of uh, a way in which they could model what uh, they were seeing in me as a level of honesty and courageous speech and that they would model that and hence also begin to talk courageously about their uh, about their whiteness and white privilege but of course in that case there was a great deal of backlash um... and uh, in terms of what actually happened is i was called all kinds of names uh... and i needed police presence during my my lectures um, at various universities and even uh, during my, uh, even during cases where I, where I teach at the university, I had to have police presence. So so I thought to myself, well, I think I need another piece, right? And, and why did I need this piece? I needed it in the light of the, the Kavanaugh situation. I needed it uh, in the light of, you know, Bill Cosby uh, having been arrested and, of course, now having been charged and now doing prison time. Weinstein, uh, the entire... Um, hashtag Me to movement. I thought it's necessary for me as a male uh, to to speak clearly and unambiguously about his sexism and the ways in which he perpetuates sexism, either through certain kinds of um, pornographic, uh, my pornographic imaginary, or in terms of the way in which I engage in, which is an extension of that fragmenting women's bodies on a a daily basis and what that means, or the way in which I'm just sort of part of this structure, call it patriarchy, and the ways in which I may not even realize or have thought about, because they're so commonsensical, uh, the ways in which I have come to perpetuate violence against women.
0: So George, I want to. Really,
1: it was a good time. Yeah.
0: I want to break this down because there's so much in what you did and in what you just said, um, and I'm going to translate it. I'm going to try and translate it for our listeners through my own experience with it, um, mm-hmm. and help me see if I'm understanding it and where the power in it comes from. So when I read hashtag I am sexist, I even wrote you a note on Twitter because I was so grateful and blown away oh, that. You the in it, you make very clear that you love and respect women. You even talk about how your relationship with your own wife has led you to learn about these aspects of yourself. And that it showed me a man who was saying, I actually respect women enough that I'm going to stand up and own this part of me so that I can do a better job of treating women as equals. Am I understanding it correctly?
1: Oh, absolutely. In in, in fact, well stated. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, look, it, it's not just, you know, that I was in, invested in sort of, um, you know, m- making it clear that, uh, well, maybe I should say this. I was very much invested in making it clear that I am an individual who, if you look at the word misogynist, it actually means to hate women. Now, I'm not a hater of women, but yet I am this male who has, from a very young age, been inculcated by cultural assumptions, uh certain notions about gender divisions and i give this uh, wonderful example of my wife well before before we got married uh i wanted her to take on my last name and and i said this because i thought she had her father's name which of course she she does and i thought well that's an instance of patriarchy so take my name and then of course she said look i i like my name it's a part of my identity so what I was saying, in essence, is that let I want you to have my name so that you can identify with me, the uh, alleged uh, you know figure who has power, right, in the society. And then she offered something which was quite profound. She said, well, why don't we both change our last names? And of course, I then dropped the ball. In other words, I wasn't <laughs> able to be as flexible with that, right? But, you know, Part of it, in what she was saying, and what I disclosed, obviously in, the, in the, the hashtag "I am sexist" piece is that here's a case where, as a male, I'm assuming that I have this authority, and that she then is the person who is supposed to give up something to be in a relationship with me. So while it's true that I'm married, there is nothing incompatible about being married and yet being a sexist. Right, and so that's what I was doing. I was trying, and, and, and by extension, trying to communicate that, I think, to other men, to say, just because we love women, just because we want to do good by women, just because we talk about um, justice and and fair, you know, fair play and equity, it doesn't mean that we have failed in our lives to continue the perpetuation of male supremacy or patriarchy.
0: So, George, this then taps into Dear White America. So when I read it, um, I remember this sense of profound discomfort that you kind of experience when you're facing an uncomfortable truth, almost like when you get on the scale. And um, part of it was this noise inside of it recognizing that I have these unconscious biases that I want to move past I'm committed to moving past but part of what you're saying is if we're going to move past we have to say them out loud and as I grappled with this is scary and uncomfortable and I'm not that I don't want to be that am I really that I then started to say what if I swapped race for gender And then all of a sudden, I, of course, am like, this is brilliant. Of course, every man should recognize this, which reinforced for me Uh, that part of what is part of what you're asking of us is if we can own this in ourselves the way that you've owned your own sexism. It says to the people Mm. that we're not understanding, respecting, honoring that we're trying.
1: Absolutely. And And I think that's right. And so, 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 the idea was then is to is to get white people to be vulnerable. And if you look at that word, and I, I love etymologies, which are the origin <laughs> of words. If you look at the word vulnerable, it means to be wounded. And so, I was prepared to be wounded, to be open, to be vulnerable. To be naked as it were, exposed uh, by talking about my own sexism, and so I wanted to hold up, as James Baldwin says, that disagreeable mirror to white people so that it could see themselves in that mirror but of course, like many men, uh, white folk in this case close down on the issue of their whiteness, just as as I said, many men close down on this issue of whether or not they're, they are sexist. I mean, there are many times that I go to a conference and I will I will say to men, I said, Can, would you raise your hand if you're, if you're a sexist? Rarely, maybe two men out of, you know, whatever, 20 or 100 men will raise their hand. So they're obviously not getting it, right? <laughs> they're not getting what's trying to be communicated. Of course, I'll go on to explain what I mean by sexism. And oftentimes, then they ask, pose the question again, they will, in fact, raise their hands. But you see, it was the backlash in each case that, it, to me, is so fascinating and also very painful. For example, when I wrote the letter Dear White America, uh, on Christmas morning I started to get email messages, voicemails that were just the most horrendous stuff I'd ever heard. Um, and I'm just giving a trigger warning here in terms of your your audience uh, listeners, but I was called a nigger uh, probably a thousand times over and over and over again. And these were messages that I actually got to hear this didn't even include those postcards that I actually got, or where white people would write letters and put an envelope you 'll know, put them in an envelope and put a stamp on them just to call me a nigger in writing. I was at one point someone wrote and said that I, I ought to have my uh, I ought to be beheaded Isis style oh my God. or or called me an ape or a monkey, or said that we need to use a meat hook and put it in Dr. Yancey. Or to kill yourself now. So they were saying, kill yourself now, Dr. Yancey, you know. Um, and, and what's interesting is, after a while, you don't recognize just how violent words can have such an embodied impact, a physiological impact. And I didn't realize this until I got those, those very white, virulent messages sent to me. It was like being hit with a brick.
0: Of you course, know, it's terrifying. Them.
1: And now, here's what's interesting. So even after I, wrote the, after I wrote the piece, Dear White America, there's some white males who picked up on the, what's called the, the, the myth of the black male rapist. So there, there was one or two white men who actually wrote and said that Dr. Yancey wrote Dear White America in order to get more white wa- women to sleep with him, <laughs> as strange as that might sound. But in the case of writing the hashtag I Am Sexist piece, now, all of a sudden, I've been effeminized. There's one individual who said, who called me a wuss. There's another individual who said, again, I, I offer an, an apology here in advance. There was one individual who said that I was a castrated male. Uh, one one individual said uh, that Yancey ought to take his finger out of his vagina. Uh, and then another one said that I'm engaging in self-flagellation, which is this act of of um beating the flesh right as a way of to as a way to get rid of guilt uh, this is a very religious term it's what's called the mortification of the the, the flesh right so
0: but but, but none of them saw it as the incredibly <laughs> Courageous, bold act that it yep. was. I mean, let me say on yep. behalf of women at work, um, yep. we were moved and inspired by it. It's part of why we wanted to have you here today because mm. there's clearly something we need to learn about courageous speak mm, speech. Absolutely. You know, we you know one of the things we I even talk about now. Granted, it's in the term of innovation that when you come up with something that scares people, there's usually mm. something potent there, and mm. there's clearly a lot that's potent here. Um, So as we try and talk about how we can own our biases as a way of moving past them, Mm. I think one of the things that some of us are afraid of is if I say, I'm racist, Um, I don't want to be in a world that boils everything down to binary options. Mm. Like you in your book, Black Backlash, you talk about there's KKK, white Mm. supremacy, racist, but then there's a kind of racist as if the word almost isn't adequate.
1: Absolutely. So that's right. And so it's, it's, and it's, that, it's partly that binary that I wanted to break down in both the Dear White America piece and in the, the hashtag I am sexist in the Dear White America piece. I wanted to say to white people, I know that you're not part of the Klan. I, I understand that. I know you're not neo-Nazis. Great. But now that we've talked about the so-called bad whites. Let's talk about the way in which so-called good whites are actually perpetuating forms of racial injustice to the extent to which they are privileged by a system and a form of privilege they didn't ask for, but yet they get. So when I walk into the store at the same time as a white man walks in the store, I am the one who gets followed. But I get followed precisely because one, I get followed by the white security guard who sees me as a thief or a criminal, whereas the white gentleman who gets to walk in the store gets to shop free. And as I say, gets to shop with, with a, kind of, a kind of freedom without feeling like he has been racially stereotyped. But that feeling of being able to shop freely without that burden is precisely purchased because I am the one who is wrongly identified in this case as, by nature, somehow a criminal. And so I, too, wanted to challenge this idea with regard to sexism. I mean, I know that I'm, for an example, not like Harvey Weinstein, and I know that I'm not like, like Bill Cosby. I have not committed sort of these, these forms of sexual assault or violence in that particular form, but I want to challenge the bifurcation or the binary between the good male and the bad male, or let's say the passive sexes versus the active sexes. And I want to say that there's a way in which, as men, we've internalized too much of, of toxic male masculinity to all of a sudden think that we're free of it and that it doesn't mediate our interactions with women. And two, based on our position within a culture that's predicated on male supremacy, there is no way that we cannot do violence to women because we're part of that system
0: and not so, seeing it because it it's so much a part, it, you're such a part of it.
1: No, absolutely. So you're so integral to it and if look, if if white racism and sexism were like changing our clothes, it would be very easy. In other words, you know, I would check my clothes. I'd say these are sexist. Let me get out of them and put in, put, on, put on a pair of non-sexist clothes. Right? right? <laughs> but it, but you can't do that, right? Um, And and look, at the end of the day, I argue that the best that I can be is what I call an anti-sexist sexist.
0: sexist, which
1: Which means that I can fight against sexism. And by the way, I have been doing that every day of my life. Every morning I get up and I know that I'm preparing to fight against some form of sexism. But at the end of the day, because sexism is a part of a structure... And because it's part of a psychic dimension that, I, that, is, that has been inculcated into my very way of looking at the world, I can't get out of it. I mean, in other words, I can't do away with it just through a single act. So, too, with white supremacy and whiteness or white racism, one can be an anti racist racist. So, even as one fights against racism, and I think that we ought to do that, at the end of the day, racism is so much a part of who, we, who whites are psychologically. Built into their affects, built into their bodies, built into the way they perceive the world, that, and also built into the structure of white privilege that they can't get on the outside of it. So, so what I, go ahead, yeah.
0: So it's almost as if like we're recovering alcoholics, we're recovering sexist <laughs> and recovering racists. Yeah. Like That's it. A, what, yeah. It, we we always have to be mindful that it, it is in us like a disease, but that we can make choices every day to not. Let it take control anymore.
1: No, no, absolutely. So you know, in in um, I, I talk about this in terms of vigilance, and vigilance it comes from the Latin vigilare, which means to to be watchful. And so I think that what we have to do, both in the case of white racism that isn't the Klan kind, and also sexism that isn't, let's say, Harvey Weinstein kind, um, we have to remain vigilant and watchful of the ways in which, though our intentions are good we often ambush ourselves, or rather, we are ambushed by the sedimented racism or sexism that's already a part of our psyche, or the ways in which we move through the world. I mean, even something as simple and benign as holding the door open for a woman, if you ask a man why he's doing that, it's not just because she's another human being, but it's because she's a woman, which means that she is considered, quote-unquote, weak, and that you have a duty, because you're a man, to show your strength by opening that door, right? Right. What I want to get men to do is to rethink the everyday mundane ways in which, while this may not be engaging in sexual assault as such, it's nevertheless doing violence to a certain kind of understanding of women as somehow weak. So I think that what we need is... um, What's called, what I call parhesia, and it's spelled P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A. And it's a Greek word, which means courageous or fearless speech. In fact, it's called, it means to tell it all. And this is what's been very helpful for me pedagogically in my classrooms, is that I create what I call dangerous spaces in the classroom. And by that, I don't mean we're fighting. But they're dangerous in the sense that we raise the issue Of vulnerability as high as we can. And we strive not so much to arrive at a place, but we recognize that arrival is a place that we have to get rid of, so that there is no place called. The static anti-sexist as such, or the static (laughs) anti-racist. There's
0: no utopia for us.
1: Yes, that's right. There is no utopia, but you see, that shouldn't be depressing. Though, that should actually be quite. One ought to be thankful for that kind of thing, only because it means that every day one gets to work on oneself like a work of art, right? Like Mm. a work of art that's never quite complete. But this is kind of quite beautiful, I think. Um, for us as human beings, that we' every day we're a lived existential project, and we're constantly trying to improve without there being a place called arrival. Now, do we get better at it? Of course we do. But until the entire system is transformed, it's a little difficult to see how we stand on the outside of it.
0: Right. And, and especially if a big part of the system is not just things like our laws and our policies, but it's the way that we internalize and exhibit um, these biases all day long, every day, to one another.
1: Absolutely. So, so yes, and so that's right. So. It's in, it, in within the context of the classroom, what I'm trying to do then is to get students to begin to explore and to thematize, and not so much to confess, because confession is so easy, and, and after the end of confession, often we want absolution, and so I often tell my students, confession is easy. Because if you're going to be forgiven right afterward, you can just kind of say, oh, I'll confess, and and that's the end of it. But the problem is, if it's true that racism and sexism are systemic, then one will be asking for forgiveness forever, right? Right. And And continuously asking for absolution. But that's not the point. Justice is more important than absolution.
0: So is the point that we need to be working to redeem ourselves Yes, on a daily basis, which is why you said you wake up every morning and— aware of your sexism and the need to fight it.
1: Absolutely. And if one, you know, it's, it's funny, if one puts this in Christian terms, so assume that there are Christian listeners, you know, it, one might say that it's not, a, it's not one moment uh, that one is, as it were, saved. One might say, particularly within a Christian, Christocentric way of looking at the world, but every day one has to regain a sense of one's salvation. And that means that every day, the question of who we are, what we are, what kind of human beings we want to be, has to be a conscious choice. And I see that choice as being motivated by love. But part of the problem is that within our contemporary moment, within the United States in particular, there is no place for a public exercise of love. And what do I mean by that? James Baldwin says that love removes the masks that we fear we cannot live without. And no, we cannot live with. So I'm constantly trying to get my students to remove the masks. So when I wrote Dear White America, or when I wrote, you know, the hashtag I am sexist, in that last piece, I'm trying to demask myself, to move beyond the mask, to let people see what it is. I mean, Bell Hooks says that love is telling the truth to ourselves <laughs> and sharing it with others. So there's a way in which that both letters are actually public, demonstrable forms of showing love, one, to white people and to women across race, to say, look, there's a self in there that I know and I don't like it. And I refuse to hide behind the mask any longer, but rather would advocate on behalf of a public form of showing what love looks like. And it seems to me that love looks like hashtag I am sexist and dear white America.
0: Right. So that love looks like taking responsibility. Love looks like trying to be better versions of ourselves for other people.
1: Absolutely. And of course, the problem with this is, is that we're often part of communities that don't understand when one talks about one's sexism or when one talks about one's racism, that these are actually ways of refusing to hide behind the masks and hence all the backlash right i mean there were there were some whites one example who wrote to me and said that martin luther king would be rolling over in his grave if he knew the if he had read the piece dear white america but listen it was martin luther king who actually said that the vast majority of white people in america are either consciously or unconsciously racist and that's precisely what i was arguing and then when i get the feedback from men who then call me a wuss or who say that i'm, you know, a castrated male. There are ways in which i am damned if i decide to <laughs> speak with justice but at the same time, I'm dam- damned if I remain silent.
0: But well, George, I got to tell you, though, here you are celebrated and you are praised. <laughs> and you are not only giving us new ways to look at these ancient problems, but you're giving us new language to un- and new ways to understand ourselves and talk to each other about that. And for that, we're all enormously grateful. If people want to learn more about your work, where can they find you?
1: Well, I think that it, primarily if you if you just put in George Yancey and, and just put in the New York Times, you'll find <laughs> uh, a lot of interesting pieces there. And of course, my recent book, um, Backlash, um, is, is done phenomenally well. It's done phenomenally well. And I think that it really gets at um, this idea of the ways in which I think what is required for us to overcome or at least the challenge effectively every day of our lives, both sexism and racism, is this idea of vulnerability and this idea of acting in the name of love, which is not Hollywood, which is not sentimentality, but is in fact a form of courage.
0: George, we couldn't end on a better note. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your wisdom and the important work that you're doing. Oh,
1: thanks for having me.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.